Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. I'm Henry. I'm Danny. I'm Kagan. We're three leftist veterans that aim to expose the reality of the U.S. military's multiple wars abroad and to illuminate the damage military service does to Americans. American presidents throughout U.S. history have used American military and diplomatic power to force regime change of democratically elected governments around the world. Most veterans come from families vested in prior service, and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering. How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false? Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. Happy autumn, everyone. Welcome to episode 108. It's Henry here. Today, Kagan and I will be talking with Lisa Ling, a former intelligence analyst and whistleblower who worked extensively with drones. She's one of the subjects of the award-winning documentary National Bird on former drone unit members that included Daniel Hale and several other drone whistleblowers. Now, this particular discussion is a bit light on questions. Lisa and Kagan had my jaw on the floor for a great majority of it. Even after four years of doing the podcast, I'm still utterly destroyed by my preconceptions of what American foreign policy should look like. Please do take a listen to an episode of Primary Sources podcast as Lisa, Kagan, Sean Westmoreland, and host Chip Gibbons discuss drone warfare in depth along with a breakdown of the horrific drone strike that punctuated the U.S. departure from Afghanistan. And now, on with the podcast. I'm so glad we get to talk to you because it's nice to talk to somebody who's been on the other side of the chain, so to speak. Because I was working at uh, NSA Georgia doing missions in Yemen and Somalia. So it's interesting to talk to somebody else who's been a part of the program. I know. When I heard <laughs> about you, I was like, damn, a drony. <laughs> so, you know, when you heard the highest officer in the land say that we, you know, basically did the same thing we do for all missions, right? What did you yeah. think? It, it pissed me off. And I was working at the same time Daniel Hale was from 2009 to 2013. So, yeah, I was there too. <sighs> it's just so, yeah, it was frustrating every day and like a lot of what daniel said really hit me yeah i mean basically um general miley said that we went through the same uh level of rigor that was done for years i don't know right. not at all and we still don't know who the hell we blow up uh, it's uh, like one thing that i love that jeremy and daniel brought up in the assassination complex was the you know the important part about the fact that like most of the strikes that we're doing in areas that aren't like where we have boots on the ground is all just based on SIGINT. And the crazy thing with like using SIGINT and metadata and phone data to track people is that that could literally be anybody with that phone. And, well, apparently like, they yeah. also use like white Toyotas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. not like there's a shortage of those in Afghanistan. Exactly. Or like anywhere across the Middle East, you know? Exactly. I mean, basically, you know, I mean, it's like, uh, it's like I said, in national bird, right? 
what do we do? Do we reach down and go down there and ask them for their driver's license? Right. No. I mean, that family, I mean, nobody, you know, like a minute later, we're not talking about the family that, I mean, imagine being a parent and having to go pick the pieces of your child off the ground. Yep. And imagine that being the norm in your country. Yeah, that's one thing that I always try to express to Americans is like, you don't, like, we've fucked up an entire region for generations. And that's not like hyperbole, it's fact. And well, my- I mean, <laughs> the Kuchi tribes are homesteading. Like these are like Afghans and um, others who have been wandering as nomads since the days of Jesus. And now they're homesteading. Right. I mean, that is a significant historical impact right there. And um, the other thing is people think that drones, that it only matters when they strike. No, it's terror because you've got this thing flying over your head and nobody's immune. Yeah. We've gone up doctors, teachers, infants. Nobody is immune to a strike and you don't know when it's going to happen. So you could be a child sitting outside gardening with your mother. And the minute you turn and look left at your mother again, she could be in pieces. And that's literally what we've done to the entire region. Yeah. And that's, that's what was so frustrating for me to see like the fact that everybody is sitting there cheering and like high-fiving each other after we do a strike. And I couldn't help but think about like what's going on with the people on the ground. How does this make the neighborhood feel? Like, is this actually doing anything? And, you know, nobody ever gives a shit about those questions because to them, it's all just about the mission. Well, no, I mean, it's not only just about the mission, but we, ha- we can't forget the historical tropes, right? right. They're uncivilized. Yeah. The, the desensitization I mean, and the dehumanization. Yeah, we default to these tropes that are made. And I mean, it's sad. It's incredibly sad. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, um, the names that we called them, well, I won't say we because I didn't, you know, right. uh, but I did participate in the program, but the other thing that people don't understand is that until you get to the other side of that secret wall, you don't know what you're getting into. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wasn't a young kid when I was ended up there, you know, and I honestly didn't know what was on the other side of that wall. And I mean, to me, it was once again going to be playing with um, computer equipment. Little did I know that the same technology that helps people operate their office programs or, you know, their video camera or their Zoom meetings are the same thing that kills people on the other side of the world. Like, who saw that coming? I didn't. Right. Yeah, no, I feel the same way. I just, like, I went into the, to the job I was doing in the Navy and I was like, oh, okay, like, I guess I'm going to be doing stuff with like geography and maps. And then it's like, you know, I mean, cause they can't tell you that much when you're starting. And then it, even when you're in school, you just learn a little bit, but like, you don't really learn until you start getting to the command and doing the work. And then it's like, whoa, like you really get to see the scope of everything. Yeah. And then there's these things that people don't understand or realize about called stop loss. Yes. 
And so basically, Ooh, I was I mean, lost. Yeah, Henry has lots of experience with that. <laughs> I mean, a lot of us have a lot of experience with stop loss. Oh. Um, a lot of people, you know, especially like in the anti-war movement, will say that you know we decided to join up. Well, yeah, there are several things that I decided and that I thought about before joining. And I joined. I joined the army. And I thought, you know, what is the least um, aggressive position I could take in the military? And that was a nurse. So I joined up as a medic and, and um, eventually became a nurse. And when they found out I had technical skills and basically, you know, I just wanted to help people. I didn't have bad motives. Like mm -hmm. I, I wanted to be able to afford rent and things in my life. And, and uh, so I joined up as a nurse and, 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 had some really um, cool deployments as a nurse where I actually got to help people. Um, and then, you know, they found out that I was technically inclined and that's where I ended up. But um, that's not, you know, like that's not the typical thing that happens. But at the time I joined, they were leaving old technology like banyan vines and for technology the internet basically so um yeah and i'm still like you know i'm still just floored it's like there's an entire well-funded news media that's 24 7 in the united states and the highest ranking united states military officer in the united states told the entire world that we went through the same level of rigor that we've done for years. And then it's now called a mistake. And I'm sorry, a drone strike carried out by the numbers as the world just happened to be watching isn't a mistake. It's a design pattern. Yep. There's a process that just repeats itself over and over and over again. And it's not like an accident. It's just, it's become a machine at this point. And that's the frustrating and scary part is that we've turned the military and operations into like a corporation where it's all about the product. Like what's the end result? Doesn't matter. Just keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. And that's why no one ever questions what the defense budget is. And no one ever questions why we keep spending all this money on this program and uh, and all this crap just to keep making these war profiteers money and it's just disgusting <laughs> isn't it i mean do we even have collateral damage anymore or are they externalities <laughs> it's so easy to get written up as something else you know and that's i mean we talk about this a lot on the pod just the idea that like uh, what happens is what is written up and when what your team is willing to say happen and it's it's just disgusting that like the, you know, the higher ups and the political people can come out and say crap like that. And it's just like, ugh, like when you know it's not true and you have to sit there and listen to it, it is the most frustrating thing. Well, don't forget. I mean, like it's compartmentalized. And so mm -hmm. there is a number of people who work within the program that have no clue what just happened or what's going to happen. In fact, the people that are actually in the drone or, you know, in the quote unquote pseudo cockpit, I guess, mm -hmm. they know the least about the program. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Right? Well, yeah, it's like, it's like any boots on the ground. Like they only know what they need to know 
And then it's up to other people to know more about the situation. Yeah, go kill that thing. Go blow up that thing. Go, yeah. I mean, but, um, I mean, I don't know. There's just so much there, so much to take apart, so much. And it's growing exponentially. I mean, nobody sees the connection between what just happened in Australia. Oh, uh. You do. <laughs> I know you do. <laughs> I think um, of it as the Borg, man. Do you um, remember the Borg on Star Trek? Yes. The simulation. Does it fit? I mean, and then you have to think of the people that are that have been in the drone program, right? Like Reality Winner, she was in the drone program. Daniel Hale, he was in the drone program. I mean, why are, why, you know, like, why are people, I, I, people just keep saying that you can't, like, I don't you can't talk about, or, you know, pass papers or do any of those things. But what people don't understand um, is, I mean, so basically what Daniel shared was that 90% of those killed by drone strikes were not the intended targets. And again, with that well-funded news media that we have um, and people being killed multiple times, why I'm not seeing that on television or you know, in the mainstream is just beyond me. Um, well, I guess it's because the news media has become also a profit-driven corporation. Um, but I mean, basically the public has the right to know what's being done in our name overseas. And I mean, the drone program is insane. It's so frustrating trying to talk to people from, you know, the community that I worked with and some of them, like I'm, I talked about this before on the pod, like I'm grateful that I had some friends that I worked with where I could like go home with them and then be like, what the fuck? Like we could actually, you know, kind of deconstruct our feelings about it. And I'm so grateful I did that. But that was like, you know, three people out of the hundreds of people I worked with. And everybody else is just like, oh, it's classified. We don't, we shouldn't talk about this. And I'm just like, no, fuck, we should talk about this. Like, this is absolutely the stuff we need to talk about because we're killing people in the name of some bullshit idea that we're making the world safer. And when we try to ask the basic questions of, is this effective or is this working or is this doing anything, you know, nobody, nobody gives a good shit. That's why we have forever wars now. Yep. Everyone's just going along to get along. And I'm hoping that after Afghanistan, like people, like people are starting to ask that question now that we're, we've withdrawn and people are like, why, why is the military budget going up after we just ended this war? Oh, because that's what it always does. Because they look, because it's just become a thing at this point that everyone just sees as, oh, we have to pass these bills and we have to spend this money. And it's well, like, I absolute mean, crap. the end of every fiscal year, you know, I mean, they always walk up to the technologists and say, what can you buy? Because yeah. if you don't spend it this year, you won't get it next. And you can spend a lot of money that way. Um, I mean, and then you look at, I mean, you look at whistleblowing itself and everybody says, oh, why didn't you go through proper channels? Because what? proper channels were cut out for national security whistleblowers. Yeah. I mean, the Espionage Act of 1917 you know, um, 
basically it's a crime to interfere or attempt to undermine the efforts of the military during a war or what have you, right? I mean, you go through, um, then it changed 1918. Um, you know, there's like, uh, it, it's just insane. A lot of people think that there's this easy way that you can just go through this chain of command, maybe make a couple of bureaucratic phone calls and blow the whistle on a thing that's happening that's illegal. And no, you can't. You have to, if you, I mean, if you are able to actually blow the whistle through proper channels, I don't know if you've seen it, but during the Iraq war, remember that food service debacle and the contractor debacle and the bathroom debacle and the debacle after debacle after debacle during the um, Iraq war? I watched several people fill out all of the necessary paperwork to quote unquote, blow the whistle. And I watched the reactions of these guys when absolutely nothing happened over a span of years. And yeah, so, I mean, there really is no way to effectively blow the whistle and the espionage act just it just needs to go i mean it if it was meant for spies and we're only using it for whistleblowers there's something broken here right well and there's also just like i mean i think the air force is doing a little better now because they actually are starting to have psychologists in certain shops so that people can talk but like when i was in the only person that we could talk to was like our like one chaplain that we had for like 1400 people and I mean, most i mean if you weren't that chaplain's religion exactly i mean it was fire and brimstone chaplaincy inside the drone program that made it quote unquote okay for us to do what we were doing when we knew it was wrong well and nobody wants to go talk to somebody about the way that they're feeling because there's a disincentive when you say, hey, if you have mental problems, you could lose your clearance or there could be red flags on your clearance. Who the fuck is going to want to seek help when they could get their entire career taken away? Like that's that's you know, it's just disgusting that they're like, oh, we have these channels and we have ways to help you. And it's like at the end of the day, that's all just about covering their ass. It's not about actually helping people get through it. And they're starting to finally acknowledge some of the toll that remote combat takes on people but it's i mean again it's like a lot of that falls on deaf ears too because they're just like well this is the way that we're going to wage war now like this is a future of war and everybody just has to deal with it and it's bullshit the video especially game. when you get treated differently as somebody who's been a part of it like you don't get treated like regular combat veterans they don't see you that way well i've deployed and been in the drone program um so if given a choice, I would go to a war zone. Thanks. I mean, when I joined up, I knew that it would be possible that I would have to shoot somebody. And my assumption was that somebody would be shooting at me. Um, I never in my wildest dreams thought that we, we would be um, consummating war from the other side of the damn planet. Mm -hmm. I mean, who's... You don't say it well... I joined before the internet was a common thing. So like, 
you know, maybe it was a little different for me than maybe the millennials that join up who have lived with cell phones and internet and everything, but I don't think so. I just don't, you know, I don't see it. Um, it's basically, you know, the internet of hellish things that we have now. And, and the whole idea of it being like a video game. I mean, that isn't something the public decided. That was something the military put out along with a video game yep. on the internet so that it would be so that people would be desensitized to what it really is. I mean, for the Intel analysts and for others, um, if you read like Alex Edney Brown or, you know, what Sarah Shocker wrote or um, or any of the, the studies that are coming out now what you'll find is that working within the drone community is a much more intimate experience than being boots on the ground. And I know that's hard to conceive of, but the things that you, that you see or you witness from a distance are much more intimate than always being hypervigilant and having to look over your shoulder for somebody to, there, there's more of a, there's more of a connection for especially the intel folks that follow these people around i mean <laughs> you get to learn so much about the people about the region about the culture and that's something that i've always cared about as like a human being is like new experiences and learning and that's part of the reason i was driven drone well that's why i like well likes being a part of the community but it's really yeah like when you have to go take all that you've learned in the pursuit of killing somebody. And then you get to witness that it is a truly intimate act and it is really damaging. And yeah, and the other thing about it is, is that you would think that after 20 years of war in a country that, that the higher ups would actually call people by their right name. They are not Afghanis. Afghani was the currency that I spent while I was there. They're Afghans. Mm -hmm. After 20 years, we should be able to at least, if nothing else, get that right. I mean, come on, really? It just drives me freaking nuts to hear, you know, I mean, it's, it's crazy. I mean, and how you can't, it's very difficult. Like, I mean, all of us in the drone program that I know anyway, that have a conscience that participated in, in, you know, that kind of thing, um, that left the Air Force, became very outspoken and, and very, um, I would say, obsessed with the idea of right and wrong. I mean, and that's supposedly part of um, what they call complex PTSD or what have you. But if you look at the people who've come out over the past, you know, decade or so, all of them have touched this program in one way or another. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it for a minute, all of them have touched it. Um, Reality Winner, Daniel Hale, Edward Snowden, Thomas Drake. Um, I guess John Kiriakou saw it from the other end. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, and you go on and they've all touched this devastating program and opted to speak out despite the risks. So to me, that tells me that there is something innately wrong with the program itself. 
And this whole thing about the military wanting to not have service members have PTSD or have moral injury. If you want to stop moral injury, stop having soldiers do immoral acts. Defending yourself is not an immoral act. Yeah, they don't want to acknowledge that, though. I mean, if the military was going to acknowledge moral injury, they would have to acknowledge just how damaging just being in the military is. And they don't want to do that because that will hurt their retention and the morale, which has already taken a huge beating. But, you know, they don't want to acknowledge any of that. See, I dis- I disagree. They acknowledge that PTSD exists. They acknowledge that moral injury exists. The DOD does not. Yeah. What it's do you mean a- it doesn't? The, uh, officially, the DOD does not recognize the concept or the idea of moral injury, whereas, like the v, the VA, does. They actually, you know, train their their personnel there to actually talk about it and understand it and consider it to be a a valid thing. Hmm. Damn, I did yeah. not realize that. Yeah, I can't I can't remember where I read that, but I I saw that and it was like, oh my fucking god you guys are are they're either evilly brilliant or or maliciously retarded but i mean it's it's how institutions think it's one of the largest institutions in the land it is it is it is it is beyond beyond massive so that's why i said that like because they don't want to acknowledge it because if they did they would have to acknowledge the damage that do just being in the military is to a person no, you're absolutely right, Kay, that the, the, the arrow would start going out at so many different things. You know, do we look at how women are treated in the military? Do we look at how people of color are treated in the military? Do we look at the rights that are taken away by the MPs or CID or, I'm, and I'm just spitballing off the top of my head, but there, you're right, there could be a million different ways that that would end up happening. And you would have people who would simply read, oh, moral injury, that's kind of interesting. Um, why are we doing this then? Because it, it, more people would grab onto it. There are, I'm sure there are lots of people that didn't leak but came close. You know, people that they saw things and they, they attempted to stomach it in the best way that they could. But if more people understood that their injuries are something that their, their, their comrades share, it'll be a lot easier to talk about. Well, I mean, handling it in the best way that they could. Many of, I mean, I'll never forget Jacob George. Jacob George asked like a pretty legit question. He said, why are farmers going to Afghanistan and killing farmers? I mean, that's a pretty deep, damn legitimate question. And to this day, it's not really been answered, has it? Nope. And that's some good solidarity right there. Class solidarity. (laughs) I mean, there's just so much and some and, and, and a lot of people, the best way that I mean, I don't know about you, but in the drone program where I was, there were three suicides while I was there in a two-year period. In my first seven months at the command, we had like seven DUIs and like three suicides just in the first six months. And then in my entire three years at the command, we had like another four. So, I mean, what if the military took statistics on what the... um, AFSCs, MOSs, um, where these suicides... I just had the exact same thought. Yes. Break break it down by job and who has the most suicides and trips to mental health based upon what they, the military makes them do. 
I mean, yeah. And I'm, and I mean, you may disagree with me on this. Lots of people do, but I think, um, and this is going to piss off a lot of people in the peace community too, but I'm going to say it because I'm me and I'm just like that. I think the draft was a losing. The draft was a lose because nobody has to look at war anymore, even to keep their kids from participating in it. Yeah. We've talked about that. That's something Danny talks about a lot too. It's just like, yeah. Danny, Danny wrote one really great piece about that. And I, I, yeah, I tend to agree with him that our, the, the, the cost of military service has, has entirely uh, dehydrated from the people. There is no connection anymore other than people who are serving or who have served previously, but ordinary people, nada. So yeah, bring the fucking draft back, please. I think that would in some form or another. Even the people who served um, previously, Oh, hold on a minute. Anyway, um, even the people who um, who served previously and, and, and all of that in other wars where they had the draft looked down at us. Hmm. Because we volunteered. That's so dumb. <laughs> I mean, even if they don't say so, you can feel it in some of the spaces. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I wasn't like hop skipping and jumping on a nice sunny day going, hmm, I think I'll join the uh, the military. Nope. I, I mean, I don't believe many people do that. And, you know, I mean, I don't even come from a huge military family. But if you look at the weights and balances, where can you get where can you get medical? Where can you get like retirement? Where can you get college? Where can you get a paycheck, a roof over your head and all of those things? Where can you get it in this country? And the answer is the military. That goes back to, to farmers murdering farmers. That, yeah. that, um, yeah, that the, the the economic aspects of service have to be have to be acknowledged, and that that I think if you really explain that, even to people that aren't anti-war, people that are still you know ostensibly pro-military, say that you know I I worked on a farm my whole life, and then I joined the military, and I went over there to kill farmers, and why would I want to do that? I know how hard that life is. I understand that it's it's not always, you know, sunshine and rainbows. I think that there would be a lot more empathy in that in that way if if we could get it across to people in that way but you're absolutely right about the the peace movement aspect of the you know stuff like the like the draft that it's going to that there is there is a there's a there's a there's a stain that we're you know that we were we were undrafted but again where else do you make money and also is that technology has allowed a very 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 small military if you look historically at the size of the U.S. military to commit a much higher level of violence because of the technology we use, like what we're talking about today. That it, you know, in terms of how how many how many spec ops teams would be needed to do that same amount of damage to people, even if we put aside all the morals of actually doing it, it would take a huge amount of manpower and training time and 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 funds. Drones are cheaper infinitely cheaper you know you can murder people by the dozen well let me put it this way 
there's paper truth and there's reality, right? Sure. And in the military, when you take a look at paper truth, sometimes paper truth is like, how much do you pay the DOD personnel? Mm-hmm. And reality is how much do you pay the contractors? Are they cheaper? Because everything that we've purchased in the last couple of decades, we've had to bring contractors with us mm-hmm. to deploy, right? We've had to have contractors. So we're not only purchasing the equipment, but we're purchasing the contractors to mitigate all of the errors. And what comes along with that? Has the military budget actually gone down? No. So how, I mean, we keep saying that they're cheaper. And I think that this is, again, I think that disinformation and propaganda, you know, it comes out with these tropes. Drones are cheaper. Are they? Is the R&D less expensive? Is, you know, I mean, how much has uh, Lockheed Martin grown in the last couple of decades? I mean, if I recall correctly, weren't they the folks that were losing money on building airplanes? No, in, in, in terms in terms of me mentioning cheaper, I mean, there certainly is the financial aspect, but I'm thinking more to the um, that it is morally cheaper here in America to kill people with drones in terms of other other ways where coffins would be coming home and there would be a lot more questions about why this is happening and is it something that our country actually needs or wants um and it's i mean it is it just over you know over time i mean i, I in in terms of the cost that there's you know there's so many different ways we can look at cost but you're right though in terms of that even for if we were to consider that drone uh, drone warfare is cheaper in in r&d or in the in actual purchases that doesn't uh that doesn't equal out to a lessening of the military budget in any way or a lessening of of military firepower in the in that situation yeah and i i mean i look at all of these things as countermeasures post-vietnam countermeasures because Mm -hmm. the anti-war movement during the vietnam era um was effective in multiple ways right um and you would think, I mean, you would think that we've learned a lesson somehow, but um, as Americans, we have an incredibly short attention span. I mean, seriously. Um, and I, I just think that, I just think that uh, all of these things that that separates the anti-war movement, um, I mean, some of it is definitely by design. I mean, a lot of people talk about Cointelpro. In fact, I think I heard a program y'all were talking about Cointelpro, and they talk about you know in, in a general way. But Cointelpro was really strategic. I think we, I mean, when we were talking to Lee Camp. Yeah, we talked about yeah. Cointelpro. They basically they basically um, took the cream of the crop, the the well organized organizers, and at first they started harassing them a little bit. And then they started, you know, um, harassing them a little more. And then they started taking them off of the board, yeah, out yeah. of play. And then what happened was because leadership down below or under them wasn't trained, then it ended up being um, a more chaotic situation. And it was it was a very successful operation in yeah. many right? And that hasn't gone away. In fact, the strategic value of just the same thing continues to this day. And we don't talk about it very much. We don't, there's no discourse surrounding it. I mean, even, you know, even talking about um, 
drones and 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 video game keyboard warriors and all of that kind of thing it still segregates us i mean why isn't the anti-war movement standing behind the fight for 15ers if you really want to prevent war pay people a living wage absolutely you know i mean why are like you know and there's there's like words they call this in the activist community i think it's like intersectionality and it's like uh, i know where my places like in in you know doing what i do you know like if it came to looking at surveillance in communities i certainly wouldn't go to me because you know being a white woman in america my community is not surveilled much right so i would go to folks like blm and say hey how can i be helpful and I just, I don't see enough of that. And I don't see like, you know, a lot of strategy in that way, but it's starting to happen again. Our podcast is supported in a few different ways. First, there's Patreon, where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters, helping the guys and I pay for some of the podcast expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned right here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help keep us going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I'm sure I can't think of at the moment. So let's bring out our honorary producers, and they are... Will Arends, Fahim Shirazi, James Obar, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Janet Hansen, Tristan Oliver, Daniel Fleming, Michael Karen, Zach H., Ren Jacob, Howard Reynolds, Why I Am Anti-War Podcast, Scott Spaulding, Kenneth Cordasco, Corgoth, and the Status Quo Podcast. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you so much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Or please check out our awesome store on Spreadshirt.com for some great Fortress merch. The link is in the show notes. And now, let's get back to the podcast. I think. I agree with you. I think it is happening. I mean, it's like we've, we're siloed, like you said, on purpose, right? Like there, there is an intention to divide all of us who are fighting against oppression because that aids the, the power. And so, it, yeah, it's hard, but I know it's hard for some veterans to feel like connected with the other communities. But I mean, it, that, like we're all connected. Intersectionality is the only way to look at systemic issues because everything is connected when it comes to people, like everything is. So we have to, we have to look at it through that lens. More so today. Yeah. Virtually, I mean, yeah, so. Um. But I mean, you look at like I, most people don't know that reality was that reality winner was in the drone program. She was at a where was she? She was at Hawaii before or Colorado before she was uh, at Georgia. She was in Georgia. 
well before she was in georgia because she was there as a contractor but when she was in the air force wasn't she in she was somewhere else before there i think yeah i can't remember where but there's so many freaking bases now Right. Well, it's just funny because when I, I, when we were all talking about her initially and she was saying, you know, the shop that she worked at and stuff, I was like, shit, I know that shop. Because <laughs> we worked in the same building. So oh, not at the same. Yeah. Not at the same time. Because she, she like, I forget when she started contracting in Georgia, but it was like, I left in October of 2013. And I think she had just started like a couple months before or something like that. So she hadn't been there or... yeah but it was funny like in her well it was interesting to me in her uh statement you know she's talking about like her time at white lawn stuff and i was just like picturing it in my head <laughs> i know i know i i totally yeah. get that oh, i just i feel like i don't know i think her whole situation to me was just the most frustrating because like she got in so much trouble over a single document that Act, that ended up helping the fucking investigation and i hoping the freaking administration that we have today become the administration that we have today yes but you know the other but then we can take that into the activist community and everybody thought that she represented like russia and war right and so the anti-war community didn't want to get behind her a lot of people and so you really, really it was a real struggle because a bunch of like older um, uh, anti-war movement folks just didn't want to touch the Russia thing. Yeah. That's I mean, I'm just, being, I'm just being real because I mean, that was like, you know, it was incredibly frustrating. Um. And I just, you know, it's like, again, why are we not working together? I mean, the fact of the matter is that, you know, you can understand that Russia hacks and Russia spies and we hack and we spy and freaking Iran, everyone else hacks and spies. I mean, it's just the way statecraft works, right? It doesn't mean that you have to like go to war with them tomorrow. I mean, I think like there's a lot of nuance missing in a lot of these narratives, it's like, again, that safety of being right or wrong or, you know, virtue signaling or any of those things. I mean, it, it's crazy. It's absolutely insane. Um, I mean, I think that we can do better to have strategy and work together and come together on certain things. Um, That's what I like to, you know, like my friends here in Portland, you know, when I'm talking with them about, uh, you know, just police presence, police intensity, the like the the gear and stuff, you know, it's like a lot of kids who aren't a part of the community, like are a part of the military or like understand foreign policy. They can just look at the police stuff and just think that it's just about giving the police more power, which it is. But like, you know, understanding the context, understanding the executive order that lets military people buy stuff from the DOD for really cheap and that they just get all this equipment and like just understanding the militarization of the police is not an accident and it is not unintentional and so like getting like I've, I've been finding that that's a great way to get people involved is to just talk about the ways that our foreign policy has infiltrated our domestic policy and 
get people to be like, well, if we want to attack it from that angle, we also have to attack it from this angle. And that's really builds the community and the solidarity. Well, not simultaneously. I mean, how many activists have come to you and asked you about your experience within the program? Uh, like non-veterans? Either or. Um, I think, I think most people want to know just because being in part of the intelligence community. I'm not, I'm being specific here. How many have actually come to talk to you about strategic ways of pushing? Nobody. That's my point, right? So we look at BLM and we look at the, the whole thing in communities of color across this nation. And as a white woman, I don't know what to do. I don't. I mean, I can look up, I can read, I can educate myself, which is incumbent upon me to do. But if I want to push back, I would go to them and say, hey, how can I be useful in pushing back? Because they've lived with surveillance in their neighborhoods from when they had to carry um, lanterns in New York and beyond, right? Historically. So they've been pushing back on, they're the most experienced people at pushing back on surveillance within a country, right? So go to them. We are the most experienced people with pushing back on this technological behemoth. And not a single activist has come and talked to us. Why is that? I don't know, maybe there's, I don't know if there's like a communication issue or if there's a like, I don't know. I think that people feel like there's a lot more pressing issues or they feel like the issue at home is no, somehow- No, they're out like, there standing in front of drone bases. They yeah. went to preach last week, right? And what does that do? What did that accomplish? What has changed? I have that same thought every time I see that kind of protest or or, or the- um, uh, interrupting some people's speeches and stuff like that. I mean, it, it, it makes for great theater and it feels great to us as, as activists, but did any, did it do anything even, you know, even in the most minuscule way, did anything that they took on actually change something? And the answer is no, it, it doesn't do it. Um, I felt that way when they were having the marches in 2020 after George Floyd was murdered, that, Yes, you're you're marching for something, but but what exactly can you tell me this the systemic ways that this is going on, or are you simply caught up in No, your... they have strategy. They had people working in that they had strategy and they've made some I mean, just yesterday they were talking about police reform in con in the halls of Congress, right? That's huge. That took people working together. That took strategy, right? Mm -hmm. um, the folks that were the anti-gun crew, right? What they got, they've got certain things accomplished that are still pushing forward. And I'll say that, you know, there are some organizations that um, have done different things, but today, like, I mean, let's say people have been standing in front of drone bases now for how many years? Now, I can say that some of the work that um, Sean and I have done has had an impact. And I'm not bragging because I want nothing more than to like work with a bunch of other people and, and have a, come up with a unified strategy. But mm -hmm. if we start looking at surveillance at home, 
and surveillance overseas, they're two different animals. They're two different asks. They're two different strategic goals. And if we conflate them, it's not effective. They're I mean, not, we can show the similarities without conflating them. But we're not. So like, yeah. <laughs> but we're not. So if we can't, why, why do it? I mean, why not? come up with because I know for surveillance at home again I'm going to say I'm going to go to organizations like BLM and ask them how can I be helpful what's your strategy how can I get on where can I stand in front as a white woman <coughs> with privilege so that you don't have to right mm -hmm. I'm not going to go invent let's like fight drones CONUS because of surveillance why would I do that there are people that have been fighting surveillance for decades why reinvent the wheel? Mm -hmm. So, um, I and that's just the kind of thing that I'm talking about. Maybe I'm mean. <laughs> I don't know. No, no, I, I get what you're saying, though. Like, yeah, that I mean, it's always easier to work with people that have an established uh, strategy in place than trying to create it yourself. Well, not that it's easier. Because I could give a damn about easier. I mean, for me, what I do is more of an amends because I really fucked up, right? Yeah. So, uh, but I mean, it's so not because it's easier, but what... It's, it's actually, more effective, I should say. Yeah. So, I mean, um, I mean, one of the things, one of the things that, like, as far as, so Daniel broke the law. A lot of people are walking around saying he did nothing wrong. I concur. I don't believe what he did was morally or ethically wrong, but he broke the law. If we don't discuss the law that he broke, the law never changes. Right. Have to be specific. It's like, oh, he broke this law. Why is this a law? Oh, because it's some stupid thing that we created during World War I. Right. right. <laughs> I mean, if we, don't, if we don't connect those dots in our, in our discourse, they don't get connected. So um, same with reality winner under the same law, Edward Snowden, um, you know, and more. So why are we not looking at the Espionage Act as something to push back on so that people, be, as more things become more secretized, which is what's happening. I mean, our electoral process is becoming secret, right? The most fundamental thing in our country is, become, is becoming technical, digitized, and secret by extension. So it seems to me that talking about the Espionage Act and pushing back on the Espionage Act would be something that we could all come together on so that those people that are behind those secret walls can actually have a vehicle to use to come out so as to not end up in prison. Um, you know, I mean, and I, I kind of feel the same way about activists. I've gone to jail, right? But going to jail and thinking that's the only way to get press. I don't believe that going to jail is the only way to get press. I think that strategy and having a press strategy is a way yeah. to get press. Yeah, no, it's so easy when you're, when you're being reacted to, like it's something like that. It's so easy for the narrative to be constructed around you instead of your desire for what the narrative is to be. Well, so. you know, there's a bunch of people standing in front of bases right now. There's a bunch of organizations doing it. And, and nobody's talking to the three of us that have been out in front 
that actually formerly worked in the drone program. Um, nobody's, you know, like, it, it's great. I mean, I think that there's a lot of organizations that want to see veterans as victims and, and have us be, you know, props. Hmm. And I mean, come on, if we are really being real, that occurs. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, we talk about that all the time on this spot about the us being put on pedestals, but what does that actually mean? And, you know, it's just a lot of it is performative. A lot of it is just, I'm thanking you because it's uh, like you're doing something that I don't have to think about, like for a lot of civilians. And like when I got out, I, I felt like I was so, you know, amped to like talk about the, you know, being doing stuff in, especially in places that people weren't at the time, they weren't thinking that much about like Yemen and Somalia and Syria and Libya. Like they weren't talking about that as much when I got out versus now. And because everyone was just focused on Iraq and Afghanistan. And that was really frustrating to me because I'm like, no, we're bombing these other countries. Like we're doing operations in these countries all the time. And if we're not talking about it, then people aren't, they're not aware, you know, and it just, it's, but it's so hard when you're just by yourself and you're dealing with the transition of getting out and everything. Yeah. So let's get together with other dronies, man. Yes. I would, I would, we want to talk to Brandon. Um, Okay. And some other like there's some other people that I would really love to like get together with and just be like you know like we need to talk about the, like all of these different experiences and then how do we come up with like an effective strategy of relaying it to the public? Yeah, kind of like um, I don't know if you realize what happened um, in Germany recently. What happened in Germany? Um, but uh, we presented um, arguments to why they shouldn't arm their drones and worked with a bunch of peace activists that were really great. In fact, some of them, some of the, some of them started and built a strategy from standing in front of bases. Like, so you can build something from that, right? Mm-hmm. And um, we actually talked to folks in the Bundestag and the result was they didn't purchase the Heron from um, Israel that they were gonna purchase. That was the wow. reason we pushed it back a little more. And we haven't stopped working on that. We haven't stopped, you know, talking about it. Um, we haven't, but a lot of people picked up on that and started to do their own campaign and totally, absolutely, and unequivocally ignore the strategy that we've started that had some success. Um, and we've tried to address that, but it's really hard, I have to say. Because, you know, what happened was the Bundestag wanted to talk to people who used to be in the program. Some folks in the Bundestag wanted to talk to us. That means you too, Keegan. (laughs) Right? And it's like quietly behind the scenes. Just have a discussion. This is why they don't protect troops. This is how they're ineffective. This is what you can do instead. And they took our arguments and they actually utilized them because they were logical arguments. And the people that we tried to speak to was not activists. We tried to speak to people in the military, people in the British military, people in, you know, like talk to them and say, hey, this is why, look, you know, we're your, 
we're, we, we, we've done the same things and this is why, this is the lessons that we've learned. And let's, you know, let's discuss it. Let's try to do something better. And it's actually been effective. I mean, just, I don't know, three or four weeks ago, there was an article about Daniel in the military times. When does that happen? I mean, those are the people that I want to speak to. Hell yeah. Not the people that know. And I didn't go to jail to get into the military times. Right. You don't have to. I mean, I think that we need to really spend a lot more time talking about strategy than we do and come together on strategy. And if we don't do that, we're going to fail. And there's so much in front of us right now besides the technological factor. I mean, people don't see the satellites going up that are supposed to bridge the digital divide as being part of the program. So everything really is connected. And it's like, you know, it's going to take people to connect some of the dots and to be able to, you know. And the other thing is, we're all using Google and Google Docs and all of that. I'll never understand that. I actually thought about that when I put your email address in when we were corresponding about today. It's like, uh, I'm supposed to get us over to Proton Mail and I still haven't done it. And, and yeah. Yeah, we need to be effective, right? <laughs> I'm just saying. I know. No. I mean, because come on, Gmail's easier. They gave us a bunch of free tools and toys. Oh, yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. Without and explaining the dark side of that. That's how it works, though, isn't it? Yeah. Give us something fun and free, and we'll take it. And we'll run with it. But, um, you know. What, I mean, what do we have out there that's not Google? I mean, even universities are forced to use Google now. But, you know, there's some organizations, I don't know, um, that are... Well, since you mentioned Daniel, like, could we talk a little about his situation? Yes. He yeah. is in a facility, a privately owned facility, a privately private prison, basically, oh, um, on a floor with about 60 people, obviously men, because it's a prison. And, um, and they're, you know, it's, it's because of COVID and other reasons, their outside time isn't, uh, has been pretty much taken for all ostensible purposes taken away. And so he spends basically 24 seven with like 60 people, which in itself is maddening. And he's been, um, he's been uh, where he's at for, I've been over a month, almost two. And he's not where he's going to be permanently. He's at Northern Neck. And um, the transition part to where you're going to actually serve your time is one of the most difficult parts for people who are incarcerated to get through. So, it's kind yeah. of their um, their basic training period in in some ways that you're trying to understand how things are working and what do I do with this and what do I do with that and how do I handle it when shit goes crazy around here. 
Yeah. And the other thing too is um, once you learn that place, then they'll send you to another one. But I mean, what a lot of people don't know, and, and I didn't know until I started supporting reality and Daniel, um, is that it costs like $500 a month just to keep in contact with your family. Like that's one, you know, person, like one individual just to keep in reasonably regular contact with in 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 a digital world with you know with free long distance phone calls and the like it's like 500 bucks a month and it's not like it's not like people who are incarcerated can just get a job and go earn that money so um so we've put out a fundraiser in fact it went out today um and hopefully i'll send it to you and you can attach it um and it's basically uh to help with um, Daniel's expenses because they're freaking crazy and and they don't where he is now he couldn't work if he wanted to and you know and everything is just so pricey I mean it the prison system you want to buy a book it's like 50 bucks I mean it's crazy and you can't send where he is now you can't send books and and there are certain things you can't send in the mail and it's just it's really insane um and you know, he can't even find a place where he can be alone to think. Um, I would, um, that might be something that uh, the podcast um, that we could we could do. We could work on that as, as a as a bigger project. Um, yeah, let's uh, let's let's uh, let's plan on talking on that. But uh, yeah, we can we could definitely uh, pitch in a bit and help. Uh, so that'd be I mean, that'd be awesome. So that's what we're doing now. And and um and I don't know, you know, a lot of people don't know that Daniel was in the film by Sonia Kennebec called National Bird. And it's, I, so was I actually, but I suppose I should say that. But it's a film about whistleblowers in the U.S. drone program. Um, and there was three of us. And, and if people out there want to actually learn about what it's like to be inside the drone program, um, as far as I'm concerned, it's the best movie out there and I'm not saying it because I was in it. Um, but uh, another movie that actually, you know, a lot of people have um, complained about or whatever uh, is Eye in the Sky. And that movie, while, you know, it is a Hollywood film and all of that stuff, it does point out all of the disparities um, between your normal life and what happens once you walk into that skiff and how separate you are from the rest of the world. I, I did like that one. I thought that was pretty interesting. There was another one that was done with Ethan Hawke and Tessa Thompson and where they're doing the same, like they're both playing uh, drone pilots and they, like Eye in the Sky is good because it's like one mission and you get to see kind of the whole chain of events. Whereas this movie was a little more about like what how the pilots are affected and the fact that they move from doing military missions to cia missions and they get to see the difference and but the thing that i loved about it is that you really get to see how he his mindset changes over time from doing the missions where like he was a fighter pilot before and then he goes to being a drone pilot and so like i felt like that was one of the better fictional representations i've seen of the program and like its impact on people yeah, and I mean, it, and and it actually, yeah, I, I I remember seeing that too, and and I thought that watching his mindset change, and his framing about what he was doing, and you know, carrying on that trope about how pilots, you know, Top Gun, 
versus drone. Um, it was really, I mean, I learned something watching it. It was really interesting to me. Um, and yeah. Um, the other thing that Daniel put out there into the world actually, it was very effective and it wasn't top secret, um, was how people got ended up on the no fly list. And so CARE actually did a um, amicus brief for Daniel because um, people were, they didn't know how to get themselves off of the no fly list because they didn't know how they got on. And that was something incredibly useful that Daniel put out in the world um, that actually got, got some people taken off. <laughs> and, it, and it wasn't secret, but nobody would give it out. One of my favorite quotes from his statement to the judge that he wrote was uh, when he was talking about just um he went through the whole thing in the the statement about his experiences and he was talking about a mission and he says after that he's like now whenever i encounter an individual who thinks that drone warfare is justified and reliably keeps america safe i remember that time and ask myself how i could possibly continue to believe that i'm a good person deserving of my life and the right to pursue happiness and that really hit because I'm like, oh, I've absolutely had that same thought. Oh, like, how can you not? If you're a principled person and you give a shit about humanity, like how can anybody who's a part of this program not think that way? Mm, yeah. Yeah, I, it's just crazy. I mean, it, it it's insane. Um, it's hard to, uh, and the other thing about Daniel is it, so during the Obama administration, they, they weren't going to go after him. And then uh, I believe it was Jeff Sessions who dug out all of the old cases. Um, and Daniels was included in that and resurrected. And so basically he was, he basically had a sort of Damocles over his head for seven years. Imagine having that hanging over you for seven years and not knowing, because when you, the whole espionage thing is that they don't tell the person they're investigating that they're investigating them. You, I mean, you're just like left in limbo. Ugh. And so imagine the damage that that does to a person's psyche. Right. I can imagine you getting paranoid and just like afraid to do anything. I mean, I haven't, you know, I haven't disclosed any top secret or secret information. And I was paranoid. I mean, and, you know, we were harassed, no doubt about it, all of us dronies um, that, you know, stepped forward or whatever started talking about it in public but i mean yeah so i couldn't imagine going through that for seven years i just couldn't i mean yeah so but he doesn't have any of those um he doesn't have any of the things that like uh reality she got um an nda and she had 
things that like she's not allowed to talk about and they um they pretty much i mean as far as whistleblowers go she got the brunt and they keep saying that they do this so that other whistleblowers won't come forward it's supposed to be an example to other people right when has that ever worked like that's i'm so tired of this stupid punishment mentality because it's it's just the same mentality we have this dumb thing that we think that if we punish enough people that somehow that's going to dissuade people from doing the right thing but it never does it never does people will always be willing to take the risk if it's worth it well i mean yeah like i mean how about like not doing acts that need the whistle blown i mean how about not over classifying everything i mean even the classification mitigation act or however it was called by obama that came out they didn't define over classification no that was my most frustrated thing about that whole thing because that's something that i care about a lot i talk about it a lot in the pod it's like the it's insane the amount of stuff that's classified and it's not about making people it's not about making the country safer it's usually about the person who is you know wanting more people to see it will like put it at a certain classification or if they want the recognition of like classifying a certain amount of things like there's just so many incentives to over classify and there's so many disincentives to underclassify. i mean if and and john kiriaku talks a lot about it and it's hilarious the way he says it um and um you know he could be going out to lunch with his uh with you know someone he knows and that becomes classified because you know you've put it on you've sent it on a classified email system right Mm -hmm. so it's then classified you would think that there'd be some automatic way to declassify hey let's go to lunch honey (laughs) like um i mean and it is that bad and there's no oversight and uh, even in reality winner's case, the classifications are um, came forward and basically said there was no reason for what reality revealed to be classified. Oh, you're talking about Jay William Leonard? Yep. Yeah, that guy's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And I, he- I love what he read. He, he wrote that really great piece in 2008, or it's like a, a memo or like a statement to... Um, I forget who it was to specifically, but he just talked about all the different ways that were overclassified, all the different techniques that are used, the different incentives, the different disincentives. It was like a really great breakdown of everything. And that was 13 years ago. And yeah, Obama came out with that thing that was supposed to mitigate it. But like you said, there's no, it's so general, it's vague, and people continue to keep doing what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, basically, um... He stood up for reality, you know, and um, had Daniel gotten to court, I'm sure he would have stood up for, I mean, it's, it's, it's insane how much is classified that shouldn't be. And, you know, I'd love to tell the world everything that I did, everywhere I worked, everything that I saw. Same. <laughs> right? But I don't see any, I mean, I don't see any strategic benefit for me to go to prison. I just don't. I mean, um, and I mean, the other thing is that, you know, there are some people that have been helping whistleblowers thanklessly forever 
like Jessalyn Radick. Yeah. I mean, she like does things and she doesn't, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't virtue signal or jump up, you know, like her work is thankless. But she's been consistently there for all of us, quietly. You know, doing stuff behind the scenes to be helpful. Well, so like with reality situation now, like, can we explain, like, cause I, I've heard like she can't say much, but like, what was the process when she got out? Well, um, she basically, you know, they have things where they put you through that halfway house situation where you have to get, you know, work and all of that. And she, right. so she got all of that. And so now basically she's stuck at home with an inkling. Um, and which means, uh, you know, she can't go anywhere. It's not like she can run down to the corner store. I mean, even that is like a whole bunch of paperwork or what have you. Mm -hmm. It's kind of ridiculous. And, is she back with her mom now? Um, yeah. Where is she? She's, she's, she's at home. And um, she's still under constant watch. Um, she's still... I mean, she's still, uh, yeah, she's still under the thumb and she really needs a pardon. Um, but there's also, I mean, there is a, uh, um, a clemency petition and it's on uh, standwithreality.org um, because she was released from Carswell, Carswell Federal Prison, which she was there for obviously for medical reasons, but you know, it's not like you can get much medical help in a prison. Um, and she basically right now is still in BOP, Bureau of Prison Custody. And while she's not behind bars, I mean, she's still in custody. She's not truly free. But um, any, like, she has an attorney, Allison Grinter. And on her website, you know, if, if people have questions or what have you, that's who all of the questions are going through. And the fact that she needs to have that happen, you know, I mean, what they did to her was ridiculous. They threw the book at her for it's, it's uh, her whole situation just pissed me off every single day. Yep. And so she's got a petition for clemency. So, um, and that's with standwithreality.org. And, um, and they have, you know, a nonprofit where they're, you know, they're trying to look at, um, at the Espionage Act and other whistleblowers and the like. Um, so that is happening um and stand with daniel hale is um daniel hale's website um and yeah i mean he's uh he's he's he pleaded guilty to a single count under the espionage act and um and when he went to court they basically said that they couldn't bring up any of the other counts again with by dropping them with prejudice that's what that means and uh yeah and he doesn't want to be the center like to help daniel carrying a picture of his face in front of a drone base is absolutely not what he wants he doesn't want to be centered in any of this he would like for us to talk about the people that live under drones the people in afghanistan the people in yemen the people that live under drones and what terror drones are and if possible to, you know, be able to talk to those people 
Um, some folks, you know, have been and tried to talk to our Congress and nothing. Crickets. Obama, Biden, Trump, all of it. Crickets. I remember when I was in and they had the, the five people from Yemen come and speak to Congress. And there was like, the, it was a couple families and there was only like a few people in Congress at the meeting, of course. And it was so frustrating. And I just remember when that kid went up there and he was talking about how he used to love the blue skies and he used to love going outside, but now he's afraid of them. And that was one of the things that really started to get me to think more critically about what was going on, like beyond, you know, my own thoughts about it. You know, when you're actually hearing from somebody on the ground who's actually been through it and like been on the other end of the business end of what you've been a part of, it really does change your mindset. And I'm, I feel the same way. Like I would love to be able to go to some of these places at some point, you know, I know it's, it's kind of dangerous, but like, I mean, some of these places that I spent so much time like looking at and the towns and random places that I, you know, have memorized in my head from looking at them so many times, like I would love to be able to go see the people there and meet them and understand what their culture is about. But, you know, it's, it's, yeah, we, we need to focus on them. I did that when I got out. That was the first thing I did. I just wanted to go to Afghanistan to like walk on the ground. And you know what they asked me? They asked me to tell people, could we just ask us not to drone their innocent civilians? Yeah. That's their ask. They basically, you know, they basically said, we understand, we get it, the whole thing about war, but could you please not drone our innocent civilians? So that's what. I do. My, my brother is in Turkey and he's been living there for about a year now. And, uh, you know, he's dating this gal from Syria and she's just telling me about, you know, how her life has changed so much over the last decade. And it's just, it's really crazy to just, you know, hear someone's experience from a place that had a pretty thriving middle class, you know, to then to what it is today and to just like talk to somebody about what was it like in the beginning and like how did it just shift over time I mean not like it wasn't great because the secret police have always been bad in Syria but you know they had they had aspects of like life that we have here that made life really comfortable for them, a lot of them and it's it was just crazy for them to see that slow shift of destruction and you know, we just, we have no concept of what that's like in America. Like most people, most people can live their whole lives without having to be confronted with death in any sort of way. And, and that's just, you know, that's everyday life for a lot of people in these region. Yeah. I mean, in Afghanistan, there are Afghans there that have never lived through the Taliban. They've only known women going to school. And they're about to, you know, see... Um, I mean, my hope is, my hope is stability. My hope is, you know, I mean, we can look at all of those other things that happen in those countries all day long about how like there's totalitarian regimes, how there's this, how there's that, and ignore the fact that drones are terror. Yeah. 
but mm -hmm. I will go back to the fact that no one is immune. If you had a drone over your head right now and you were carrying an infant, in most normal circumstances, you would think that if you're carrying an infant, people would think twice before blowing you up, but that hasn't been the case. And so even carrying an infant, there's no respite. Even being a doctor in a hospital, there's no respite. There's no escape from that constant terror. And we're supposed to be fighting a war on terror. The irony of this does not escape me, mm -hmm. but it seems to escape many, many people. And like, so, I mean, you know, what I would ask people since it's probably getting to the end of our little chat here, um, is that people go to stand with Dan, um, stand with Daniel, um, standwithdanielhill.org. And there's a whole bunch of ways that you can help on that website. Um, Defending Rights and Dissent put out um, something that um, is basically Stand with Daniel Hale and End the Espionage Act of Use. So if you um, go to Defending Rights and Dis Dissent, you can find that there. Or if you just basically Google Daniel Hale, you can probably find it there. Um, but the most current information on Daniel will be at standwithdanielhale.org. And the most current information about reality winner will be stand with um, on a website called standwithreality.org. Um, and there's um, a bunch of videos and just where you can find out more information and who's supporting these whistleblowers. Um, because in reality, um, reality winner will never be free without um, without some sort of a executive intervention. Um, and it's with her, she actually protected our most fundamental democratic institution, the institution of our vote. And, um, and because she went to prison with a felony, she won't be able to vote. So unless she actually gets a pardon at some point, and we know, we know that the president knows who she is. We know that. Um, and he really needs to, to, to partner. Um, but there's already a petition out there for clemency. And Daniel, we're just hoping that he gets moved to where he's going to do his time soon so he can settle in and, um, you know, be able to order books um, be able to read and be able to have some sort of a, some sort of connection to the outside world because right now he can't even get like, you know, a little AM radio or something um, to be able to listen to the news or see what's going on outside. Um, so we are definitely hoping for that. Also, um, if you go on, on, uh, the Stand With Reality site, it'll show where everybody's Twitter um, is, who is supporting him, and um, yeah. So. How long do you think Daniel is actually going to serve? That's hard to say. I mean, it could be like three years.
Um, before he's, we, oh, go ahead. go ahead. He's just, I mean, he's just starting now. All right. Um, before we, uh, before we wrap up, I, um, I want to go back to what you were talking about in terms of the, the psychological warfare with, with drones. Um, you know, that, that, that the U S if looking, you know, at the, like the firearm situation that they don't, you know, that, that gun owners won't consider suicides their, their problem. Doesn't matter how many there are. They, they don't see those two things linked together, but it's all, it's uh, about the psychological weight that a weapon or a drone can carry. Um, and not just in terms of what it's doing to the people. Um, I saw in an article about Daniel that he mentioned being incredibly disturbed, and I'm being euphemistic there, about his colleagues watching war porn when he was working for the uh, National Geospatial Agency. And I know that's something that I dealt with both as a soldier and I was, I was an MP, and so there was law enforcement aspects to that uh, as well and it, i always found it very unprofessional and very fucking disturbing that that people dealt with that and i was wondering if uh nk please jump in here too that in terms of the impact on you as a as a person seeing people celebrate high-fiving after a, a strike or um watching old videos well, I mean, I didn't talk much about this, but um, I, I worked with uh, law enforcement agencies and um, I worked in uh, counter drug and I worked uh, with, there's a culture. There's a culture of dehumanizing everyone other than us, right? And they're just now starting to talk about white, white supremacy in the ranks and, um, and about these things. What I'm going to say is this, a lot of times the lower ranking individuals are blamed. But as we who have been in the military and freaking in the world know, shit rolls downhill. So the fact that this occurs comes from the top. And if we are ever going to combat it, if we are ever going to push against the white supremacy in the military, um, it needs to be at the top, at the highest rank. And, and the idea of commander discretion is broken. We can Absolutely. see that in we can see that clearly when it comes to military sexual trauma, right? Yeah. We've all because Swan put that out there, but what people do not understand is that is the same system that is in place for everything. Huh? And so I think that that needs, yeah, did it do damage? Um, I can't even, you know, I can't even talk about it. I get so so angry. I mean, just the words that they use to describe other human beings. Yeah. The first thing I did when I got out was I literally, as quickly as I could, went to Afghanistan to plant trees with um, an organization called Afghans for Tomorrow. And, and I went there to, you know, to work on that, to, you know, see the humanity is missing in the drone program. The human while it's really, really intimate, I mean, and it's hard to describe, it's not human. 
Yeah, no, everybody's a target. Everybody's a, you know, insert whatever expletive or thing you want to just like to describe. Yeah, technology mediated surveillance does not work. It doesn't work here and it doesn't work overseas. Um, when you're looking for individuals. You're looking for a I just, oh. yeah, you're absolutely right. And like, I mean, the thing that frustrates me Again, yeah, like you said, it's the same thing. It's the fact that because it's allowable behavior, people just keep doing it. And the people who are the most extreme always take it to a level, like they want to push as much as they can. And I mean, I like in, in like I work at this local Kani here in, uh, in, in the Portland area. And we just had this hate crime. Like we had a hate crime at my, and because an employee came by and like sprayed a swastika on the memorial of a black man who had died in the jail and he got fired, you know, but I, like I sent an email up the chain because I was like, Hey, um, this person got fired. But the fact that this person did this in the middle of the day with the cameras in full view of the cameras means that there was a level of comfort about the way that this person did this that they didn't think that they were going to get in that much trouble. And, and so like, you know, and I was just trying to explain to my superiors, like, you know, having worked in counterterrorism and seeing violence from non-state actors and from state actors, this is how it escalates is when, when you minimize and when you placate, it only makes the extremists more emboldened because their whole thing is about pushing the envelope. And it's, it's the same thing in the military, like what, what is allowable and what, when that, what is allowable becomes normalized. We just keep continuing to go down that path. And if there's nobody that's questioning and saying, hey, is this effective? Are we doing the right thing here? Like, if you're not asking those questions, then it's just gonna keep going further down that rabbit hole. Let me throw this out here and push it to everybody who's listening. I'll say again, General Miley, the highest ranking United States military officer in the land told the entire world that we went through the same level of rigor that we have done for years. In other words, the drone strike that happened in Kabul that killed a family of 10, including children, was the same level of rigor that they use for every other drone strike and have for years was used. And that's how wrong they got it. And there's a level of comfort happening in this country right now because we are not questioning that. And I think that that is like a good place to. And that is why Daniel did what he did. Absolutely. Well, I think uh, I think that's a good place for us to uh, wrap it up for today. Um, Lisa, thank you so much for uh sharing your time and your experiences with us. And um, I know you and I chatted a little bit um, about uh, you coming back for an episode, episode zero um, recording. And so we'll, uh, we'll get that set up when we can, but uh, thank you so much for being here. Is there, um, where can people find your work where if they, people want to uh, follow you on Twitter and such? Um, a ret vet, A R E T V E T on Twitter and that's the best place to find me ranting away. 
And uh, yeah, I mean, there's some other places. I mean, I guess you can Google Lisa Ling drone. And you said um, National Bird, right? Definitely. Sonia Kennebec has put out some amazing films. Sonia also put out another film, um, The United States versus Reality Winner. And it's an incredible film about yet another whistleblower um, that I think everybody should watch. So I'll send you the links to all this stuff so you can put it on. I don't know how you guys post, but. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll add all that stuff to the show notes. So anybody yeah. can uh, who's listening can download and, and get it right from there. But. Lisa, thank you, uh, thank you again for being here. It uh, it means a lot to us. Ah, oh, thank you for having me. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill, and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time. And listen to my song. I hope you'll pay attention. I will not.